Welcome to the 13th episode of the Extensive Reading Podcast, where we take an intensive look at extensive reading. That's I'm right. one of your hosts, Travis Past, along with me. And this is Jose Camino. With uh, a cold. With a cold, yeah. It's getting worse. <laughs> um, yeah, so Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yeah, it's the first episode of the year. Yeah. Uh, yeah, hopefully. And I'm sure it's going to be a good one. Yeah, I think we'll have a good episode here. Uh, looking forward to a lot of interesting conversations in 2018 so let's let's get off on the right foot sure um so we have uh dr george jacobs um tonight um and jose is letting me do the honors <laughs> of reading this introduction to dr george uh, on account of his cold uh so george jacobs has been writing books and articles on extensive reading since at least 1997 when together with his uh colleague, this is Willie Renanja, I hope I said that right, he published a book called Successful Strategies for Extensive Reading. Uh, many of us associate his name with reading in a foreign language journal's annotated bibliography of works on extensive reading, which he compiled with, uh, again, Willie Renanja and Julian Bamford in 2000. Uh, the call today, he's calling us from Singapore, uh, where he works at James Cook University and at the National Institute of Education. And and he's a vegetarian. <laughs> yeah, just like our, our good friend Jose. <laughs> he's president of the Vegetarian Society in Singapore. Yeah, Dr. Jacobs, not me. <laughs> oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Someday maybe you'll, you'll stage a coup. It might, it might happen. <laughs> uh, so again, going back to... Uh, Dr. Jacobs, some of his uh, most recent works are a 2012 book called Teacher's Sourcebook for Extensive Reading and an article in 2016 called Using Positive Education to Enliven the Teaching of Reading, which he co-authored with, again, Willie Renanja. And for today's interview, uh, one of the things we'll be focusing on is reading aloud to students, which he's recently wrote about in an issue of Extensive Reading in Japan journal. So mm -hmm. That's right. Thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> I did my best. <laughs> um, good, so let's try. Yeah, without further ado, let's get to it. be yeah something changed <laughs> so i feel a bit sad for that <laughs> i'm working on mine I'm, I'm a month in yeah so. i see that so. and uh jose also i'm just not shaving that's <laughs> oh okay yeah that's my yeah. main reason for having a beard yeah, yeah. too lazy yeah. to shave i hear that so there's one question uh with which we start all the interviews and that's uh we ask our guests to tell us about their background and how they got involved with extensive reading and in your case that would be how um, how did you end up not only doing extensive reading but also writing and editing books on on extensive reading right um sure so yeah i think extensive reading came to a large extent because I'm very big on learner-centered education. And so extensive reading is a great way to promote learner-centered because students can do it anytime they want. There's all these books. They can choose from the books that they want. So it gives the students a lot more control. Hmm. And that fits with lifelong learning. Because if we have a reading habit, we can continue learning throughout our lives. We can, like I'm just finishing a class with some people from Indonesia. So the question we ask them is, how are you going to continue to improve your English when you go back to Indonesia from Singapore? And yeah, reading is a great way to do that. And of course, so of course, extensive listening is as well. Hmm. So could you, could you tell us when did you remember when you discovered extensive reading and in which circumstances? I don't really remember, but when I heard of it, I said, yeah, this makes so much sense. <laughs> I guess 
Maybe I, I've heard you guys debating about Krashen's ideas. Uh-huh. And so maybe I heard about it then when I heard about comprehensible input. And it's such a nice way to get comprehensible input. So that's why I, I liked it. And absolutely, yeah. Good. So um, today we wanted you to tell us about uh, reading aloud to, to students and uh, also about, more, more specifically maybe about um, dialogic uh, reading aloud. And um, so a very basic question would be, um, what's so good about it? Why, why do you think uh, reading aloud to students is, is such a good idea? Okay, yeah. So there's a lot of benefits. And before I get into some of them, let me just plug this one book. This is the famous book on reading aloud. It's called The Read Aloud Handbook by this guy named Jim Trelease. If you read this book, you're going to want to do reading aloud. It's so inspiring. Now, it's mostly an L1 kind of book. He doesn't talk about L2 at all, but the, there's a lot of lessons from there. And one of my, one of my pet peeves in... L2 is that too often we separate ourselves from a lot of good ideas that are promoted in L1. Now, yeah, it's true that L1 and L2 are different, just like a lot of people say second language and foreign language are different. Yes. So we, we just try our best to see what we can learn from other people. And So you read this book. The guy used to be a journalist, and he really knows how to write. He's got a lot of great stories in there that you'll, you, you just got to do extensive reading after you finish that book. Mm. So some of the benefits. First of all, it teaches students about the world, because even fiction, you can learn about the world. And that builds students' schema. And we know that schema are very important for understanding language. And then it tells them about the range of books that are available. So some students tend to get hooked on a certain kind of book, and you cannot move them away from that kind of book. Yeah. So reading aloud is one way. It's a kind of advertisement, an advertisement for reading and an advertisement for reading certain books. Another advantage is that it provides a model of pronunciation. So when we say the word, they see the word, and we say the word. So in L1, there's all these big books. Have you heard about big books? So it's a regular, it's a regular book, but it's, it's much bigger. It's the size of, a, of let's say, uh, a three-year-old, the whole book. Okay. So then you can hold up the book, and, or you can put it on an easel. The whole class can see it. But what you can do nowadays is just put it on PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. You just scan it, put it on PowerPoint, and there you go. So they can see all the words as we're reading aloud. And then they can see that such and such word is pronounced in such and such way. Of course, we know that there isn't any one correct accent. There isn't any one correct pronunciation, but they can, they can learn different accents, different pronunciations, but they're all valid pronunciations. Another advantage is that they can learn vocabulary, obviously, because they're seeing the word the words in context. Hmm. Also, when we do dialogic reading, when we ask them to do prediction and other kinds of thinking tasks as they read, they can build their thinking and communication skills. We can bring in lots of different areas when we, curricular areas, like we can talk about values, we can talk about emotions, We can get people to reflect on their lives, on what they do, what the characters do in the story. And 
maybe last two, very important. I think it builds a kind of bond between us and the students because now we have a shared experience. We all know about this story. We all know about the characters in the story and we can refer back to it at other times. And maybe most importantly, it builds a joy of reading because we demonstrate this story is nice. I'm really enjoying it. Mm. And then hopefully students will want to read the same story and they'll just want to get into reading. And of course, that can be great for silent reading, extensive reading. So it can kind of feed into extensive reading outside of the classroom, the, the things that you sure. do inside. Yeah, because like I said, it's a kind of advertising for a particular book and books in general. So sometimes we can just read the beginning and say, hey, you want to know how this ends? This is a title. Go and find the book yourself and, and read it. Or, you know, a lot of times people enjoy reading books more than one time. So just because we read the whole book, it doesn't mean that the students can't go and read it themselves because they're gonna, their understanding is going to be so much better because we've read it to them. It's like when I was trying to learn Spanish, you know, there's this famous book, Treasure of the Sierra Madres. Mm -hmm. And so I read it in English, then I read it in Spanish. So because I already knew the story, then it was much more comprehensible. Yeah, I've had that experience with Japanese reading books mm -hmm. that I'm familiar with in English. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned um, that this is dialogic reading. Um, for our listeners who may not be familiar with that, how does what is what separates dialogic reading from just reading out loud? Right. Well, yeah, I had the same question a few years ago when somebody asked me, can I do a workshop on dialogic reading? I said, what's dialogic reading? So I found out. And to understand dialogic reading, first you have to understand what is good reading aloud. Because too many people think reading aloud is you pick up the book, you start on page one, you read, 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 the end, close the book, and that's it. So a book for six-year-olds, the, the read aloud session ends in one minute. Mm. That's not how to do reading aloud. So let me talk a little bit about how to do reading aloud, and then we can talk about how dialogic reading is just a bit of an addition to good reading aloud. Have you heard this term, shared book approach? The idea is you get the big book, the teacher reads aloud, shares about the book, engages the students with the book. So it came from that idea. It's just like taking shared book approach a little bit further. Mm -hmm. So I, I do work workshops for teachers, for parents, in how to do reading aloud. So let me just lay out some of the steps in reading aloud. So first of all, we have to choose a good story, a story that we think our particular audience on that day is going to relate to. Okay, then we need to practice a bit. Okay, even though the book is so easy for us to understand, but we have to see how we can make it into a bit of a performance, how we can capture their, the students' attention, how we can involve them in participating. So after we've done that, after we've prepared, we start, we set the scene. So we give them the background. They can activate their schema. And very importantly, we want to give the title and the author. So they understand that books don't grow on trees, people write them, and they know how to get that book on their own if they want to read it, or maybe they want to read other books by the same author. Hmm. Then when we read, we want to read with feeling and variety. 
So that's going to, again, show our love for reading, show how this is fun. And another thing to keep in mind is we don't have to read every single word in the book. We don't have to read it as it is. If something might be a little bit boring or some words might be too difficult, we we can condense the book. We can paraphrase the words. Now, of course, we want to have some I plus one, so we don't want to take out all the words students don't know, but maybe it's a very low-frequency word, Mm -hmm. so we don't want to spend time explaining it. Okay, then, very importantly, we want to stop at interesting places, and we want to try to get the students involved. So we can ask them questions, we can give our own response, We can make our own connections to our lives, invite them to make connections to their lives. And part of that can be not just a discussion between us and the students. You know, teacher says something, one student responds, teacher says good, bad, or whatever. But we can try to have discussions among the students Mm. using groups. Do you do... Sorry to interrupt. Do you do that while reading the book? Yes. Now, I know that some people will say, oh, but I'm dying to find out how the book ends. Please don't stop. Please keep on reading so I can find out how the book ends. And that's a legitimate concern. And I've certainly had students tell me, Stop. <laughs> keep reading. Don't 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 give me any questions. Just keep reading. And uh, that's so sometimes I do that. But I think it's worth considering that maybe they just want to sit there and let us do all the work and they don't want to do too much thinking. So by pushing them to do some thinking hopefully they can enjoy the book even more. They can get more into the book because it's connected to their lives and they'll learn more. But my my idea is that teachers need a toolbox, a full toolbox of ideas. So we don't use every tool every time, Mm -hmm. we select. So if this time they don't want to stop, then I just keep on reading. But I might come back to the book again and try to get them to to respond, to interact with the book more. So in terms of dialogic, dialogic just emphasizes more on this discussion. Using, like, you know how nowadays there's all these book clubs. Like my brother belongs to a book club. So they read the book, they get together, they discuss it. And that's also an idea that's in the L1 literature and some L2 teachers have done it too. So that's that's what this dialogic reading is, encouraging more discussion and not just teacher-student, 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 but teacher-student and student-student discussion. Can I can I ask a question there? Uh, what this is what <laughs> what is it like when you have absolute beginners? I know you've you've written that um, like no, and I'm quoting: no student's language level or cognitive level is too low or too high for reading aloud. And similarly, no students are too young or too old. And I'm just wondering because, like in my case, I'm I'm doing extensive reading with uh, very young Japanese students. Well, not the uh, junior high school. Japanese students and their, their, their starting level is really low. So in a way, reading, a, reading out loud is something that you do because they can't quite read on their own. And also, I'm, I'm just having a hard time trying to figure how to have those discussions. Uh, would you use the, their L1 to discuss parts of the book? Or how, how, well, how do you yeah. go about it? Well, first of all, let me take the other end of the spectrum. Okay. Even if my students' English was great, I could I think reading aloud to them is good. I know 
university professors, not ESL professors, but uh, university professors, let's say in psychology or other areas who read aloud to their students because everyone loves a good story. So yeah, let's, we can, we can do it with a high end. Now with the low proficiency end, it's certainly not easy, but if you look at some of the textbooks for the beginners, like I'm a big fan of Interchange, Jack Richards, they've got a lot of great ideas for how to do that, for how to get them involved, how to scaffold for them. So all they have to do is come up with one word. Now, I think one good way to do it is to have them make their own books. So we work with them based on their own lives and the class constructs the book. Uh, one term for that is joint construction. So the teacher is like the scribe, the leader, and the class makes the book so they can understand the book because it's from their own lives. And then we can, we can put that book in the extensive reading library. Um, it's not going to be on M reader, at least not yet, <laughs> but, um, it, it's, uh, it's a book that obviously they're going to understand and they're going to feel quite an attachment for it because it's from their own lives. Yeah. They'll feel ownership over mm -hmm. that. That's right. Um, I think often maybe people have this image of reading aloud as reading to children, but um, like Jose said in his quote of yours, is there's you can't have a, a too low level, a too high level, or age even. So um, yeah. adults and and the benefits of of reading aloud are the same for adults as well as younger students, and I think that's a, an important thing to remember. Yeah, and if I can, if if I can recommend something, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl. Of course, there's a poem in there about television, and you know, he says, you know, you should just throw away the TV and get a bookshelf, and it's a great poem. I love reading that poem aloud to teachers. Of course, you have to you have to update it, not televisions but smartphones uh, but it's and it's such a joy to read aloud I, I love reading that aloud I'll have to check that out I'm not familiar with it or I haven't read that oh book yeah in, in ages it's great I'll I'll email it to you yeah I appreciate that I appreciate that um, could you give us some advice in case we try to do a read aloud with uh, an audience that's really not active like uh, very specifically, like three things that you can do when you when your students are really not responding. How how to how to get them involved and engaged? Well, part of it is like I said, choosing the right book. So we we want to choose a book that we, based on our knowledge of our audience, we can engage them. Like one time, I had to give what in Singapore they, we call an assembly talk. So that means you've got like 400 students, and this was primary one and primary two, uh, about seven and eight years old. So I was very scared. That's a very scary audience. So I chose books that were very involving. So they had to, they, like the, the maybe the most popular one, was this very weird story about a thumb. This woman loses her thumb and she goes back to the house and she says, who took, no, it's not the thumb, it's the big toe. Who took my big toe? Who took my big toe? And they're all chanting, who took my big toe? <laughs> and so they were so into it. And yeah, if we can have ways to get them involved, and that's one of the nice things about the dialogic reading. But certainly when I try to get them to talk to, their, to the person next to them, that flopped. 
when I did something choral, then it worked. It succeeded, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, but yeah, yeah, in Singapore too, getting people to ask questions is really, or getting people to participate in general is really difficult. Mm. In fact, yesterday I was talking to this uh, the daughter of a friend of mine. She, she goes to National University of Singapore. She told me they have a module that she's taking this coming term, asking questions, just trying to get people involved. It's, it's very difficult. So one, one tip I got was do tongue twisters first. Tongue twisters get people talking. And it's non-threatening because you just do it in a big group. And then they're talking, they're warmed up. And then maybe they'll be more willing to talk. And another idea is start with something that they know. And actually, my, my favorite technique is to do it in groups. Groups of, and a pair is a great size for a group. So that's the least threatening environment when they're just talking to the person next to them. That's, that's very nice. Thank you. <laughs> Keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of about that. Um, well, about reading to, to students and, and maybe if losing interest, at what point do you find that, that students do lose, lose interest or is there like a time limit that you found in your experience? Does that depend on age? Well, I try to have a lot of variety. Uh-huh. And that's where you can have different kinds of tasks. And that's a great thing about cooperative learning, that they can, they can do many different things with their partners, and they can have different partners. So one of my, one of my favorite cooperative learning techniques, it keeps changing, but I used to call it 4S. That's stand, stir, stop, speak. So they actually stand up. They walk around the room. They don't walk with the person next to them. They stop and they discuss. But then as I used it more and more, I added more S's. So right now it's up to seven or eight S. So I added stand, stretch. Okay, because we don't want people to sit too long. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. you've all heard about sitting is the new smoking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we so we want people to get up, then sip, because I just as Jose is doing right now. <laughs> it currently sip. Uh, it's very good to drink water. And you've heard about the research on brain-based learning. One of the one of the lessons from that is our brain is uh a large percent water. We need lots of water to work well. So it's stand, stretch, sip. Then what's, what's the, the next S is slide. Slide your chair back into your desk so there's more room to walk around. And so you get a different partner and that adds a lot of variety. But, and there's so many different tasks. For example, what about drawing? Why can't they draw something from the book? So then, again, we add more variety and the boredom is less likely to set in. That's neat. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering if sneeze is one of the ASs uh, <laughs> you have there. Sniffle. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that probably wouldn't be very healthy. <laughs> um, can we move on to this? Yeah, um, sure. So uh, in your article, you linked uh, dialogic reading with social social uh, constructivism and uh, with Vygotsky. And for uh, for myself and for many people in our audience who might not be familiar with this, could you briefly introduce it uh, for us? Sure. Yeah, so... I'm not an expert in this, but it's an, another name is 
um, sociocultural theory. And it says that three things, learning is social. So supposedly, I, although I think this is way overdone, the difference between Piaget, who was a developmental psychologist, just like Vygotsky, the difference between Piaget and Vygotsky was that Piaget was more the individual learning. Mm -hmm. And we go out, we encounter our environment, and we, we do our, we construct a new understanding. We, could, we build our schema, we encounter things that we don't understand, so that causes disequilibrium, and then we adjust, adjust our schema to, to have the equilibration. But Vygotsky said learning is social. We learn everything on the social plane, and then we take it in, we internalize it. So very important to have that interaction, interaction between teachers and students, but also between students and students. And Vygotsky also talked about the crucial role of language. So that's, that's really great for reading, great for discussing. And then the zone of proximal development is an awful lot like I plus one. So it's just beyond what the students are currently capable of. So a sort of acute way to say it is there are three zones. The boring zone, that's stuff that's way below their, the student's level. Mm -hmm. The stretch zone, that's the zone of proximal development that is just a little bit beyond what they can do, like I plus one. And then there's the panic zone. You know, it's like giving students original Shakespeare and expecting them to do an M reader quiz on that. So those are the three zones. But, you know, I know that Day and Bamford talk about I minus one. Yes. And I think there's a lot of validity to that because there's so much, the language is so complex, there's so much to learn. So even if I can understand it, it doesn't, I can do different kinds of tasks that will help me better understand, that will help me grow my language. So I think there's definitely a place for things that are maybe a bit near the boring zone. Not too, too boring. Uh, could you... Um, I have this issue with, uh, with this, is that I, um, I'm a Chomskyist, and I, okay. I have trouble accepting that language can be something social. Uh, like, how... how could, could you... Uh, how can I say this? Like, uh, in a Chomskyan framework, language would be something that's built in. It's part of your genetical endowment. So, uh, in a way, you engage in conversation with, with adults when you're a kid, and then you, you relate to other people. And then something like this contributes to the way you develop language inside your brain. Whereas if I'm understanding it correctly, um, in a uh, social cultural yeah uh, and in that framework it would be something more external and you need you need uh you need a teacher or you need something that's above you need some scaffolding to develop language and i can't quite see this okay yeah uh, thank you for raising a different perspective okay. i think <laughs> that I know that Chomsky has changed his ideas over the years, so I, I'm not, I'm probably not up to date with the latest version. Neither am I. But and I'm a I'm a big fan of what he writes about society. But in terms of language, isn't it true that we have this innate endowment and we have different settings yes. that we so if we're learning Spanish, we we put we might put the adjective after the after the noun you mm -hmm. might put that setting whereas in english we're more likely to put the adjective before the noun so that's so that's why people in liverpool speak with one accent that's why people in 
London speak with a different accent. People in Singapore speak with a different accent. That's from the social input that they've received. They internalize that. So I don't think that what Vygotsky says is disagreeing with Chomsky at all. Yeah, thanks for that. It's a different perspective, <laughs> okay. as you say. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think, um, sorry, this might not go in, but I think we, we're done with uh, reading aloud. With reading and uh, I was just wondering if you would like to tell us about, I don't know, like something else, like um, positive yeah, education. Yeah, I'd like to positive, talk about this. Positive education. Or, yeah, positive uh, education, yeah. Or maybe, I don't know, I'm thinking, you mentioned uh, having students write their own book and maybe like telling us with in, in more detail about how that's done and um yeah oh sorry sure. there's there's one sorry forget about what you just said there's just one last question about uh reading out loud and this I, i wrote is there any research on the connections between reading out reading aloud to students and their proficiency or the motivation to read uh or to learn the language Like if, if there um, was a, a, a reading out loud denier <laughs> uh, okay. that says there's no research saying that this works, uh, what would you tell them? I'd probably say off the top of my head, I can't, I can't think of that research, but uh, there's so much research. And in fact, that gives me a chance to plug the extensive reading bibliography, because which is on the extensive reading foundation website. So this is something that Tom Robb, Willie Renadia and other people and I have been working on for many years compiling and we're always adding new things in there. So it's done. You can search in different ways. You can search chronologically. You can search by authors. You can search by subjects. So Maybe I could go and search and see what I can find, but I would guess that there there has been some research, but I'm not up to date on it. Okay. And if not, that's just a gap that uh, eager researcher out sure. there can fill. <laughs> right. Good point. <laughs> yeah, but I and I'm a I'm a big fan of action research. Sure. Where individual teachers or teachers in small groups can can do a study and see what the see see what doing the reading aloud does for students' motivation. It's a, just like Tom Robb was saying in his podcast with you guys. A lot of times, extent the benefits of extensive reading for language proficiency don't show up right away. And so I would guess that it might be a bit the case with reading aloud, but maybe the motivation, yeah, the, the quantity of reading might go up. So to future researchers who want to follow Travis's suggestion and do some research, I, I would include motivation as a variable. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. I think that's important. <laughs> Good. So, yeah, I would like to move on to um, positive education. That was actually just preparing for this interview was the first time I, I came across um, positive education or, or positive psychology. Right. So, yeah, it's a field that maybe started about 20 years ago. And the idea is that it used to be the stereotype You went to the psychologist's office, you sat down on the couch, and what did the psychologist ask you? What's your What's problem? What's wrong, yeah. What's wrong? So now with positive psychology, you sit down on the couch, and the psychologist asks you, what's right? What's going well in your life? What are you good at? And so we build on that. And isn't that, isn't that such a happier way to do things? And, um, you know, Mark Helgeson, who's in northern Japan, has, and he's the past president of the Extensive Reading Foundation. He's done a lot of very good stuff on that. And if you go to his website, you can 
find some of it. And I really recommend his stuff. In fact, he was in Malaysia recently giving a talk about that. What a lot of people confuse is they think positive psychology or the, the extension of that to education is about happyology. If you're not smiling all the time, if you're not laughing, <laughs> then you're, you know, it's not positive. But actually, the, the famous guy here, is named, his name is Martin Seligman, S-E-L-I-G-M-A-N, S-E-L-I-G-M-A-N. And he's got a very nice TED Talk where he describes this. And he's got, uh, he's got, a, he's got several books on positive psychology. But so yeah, being happy is only one element. His acronym is PERMA, P-E-R-M-A. And so the first letter P is about happiness. You know, laughing, having a good time, eating delicious food, uh, enjoying a great story. That's positive emotion. Then the second letter, E, stands for engagement. And that's what Tom, Tom Robb was talking about. We get lost in the story. We are enjoying it so much, we don't care about our score on the, on the M Reader quiz. We're just enjoying the story. And another term for that is flow. You know, there's this famous psychologist, uh, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi who wrote this book called Flow. So we're just so into it, we don't even notice, wow, this podcast is so fun. It's 45 minutes already, and I thought it was only five minutes. That's Flow. (laughs) I detect sarcasm. (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. I I don't know about your listeners, but I'm having a good time. Good. I am too. Let's hope they... And then the R in PERMA is relationships. So we, we do things with other people, not all the time, because like I have this article that I wrote with Patrick Gallo, reading alone together. So that's combining the extensive reading, silent reading, with doing things with other people. And so we have these, we interact with other people, like I mentioned the book club during the dialogic reading, and that makes the reading more enjoyable. And then the M is meaningfulness. So we feel that it's got some purpose. For example, maybe we're learning the second language for a career, for to meet people, you know, integrative instrumental motivation. We, so we have some goal. It's not tenor. You've heard that acronym. Teaching English for no obvious reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, so the students have a good reason for learning the second language. And then achievement, we feel like we're making progress. And I think that's one of the good things about M Reader, because they can see, hey, I passed all these quiz, I, quizzes, I've got all these book covers. So that I'm really achieving something. I'm really moving forward. And so we can have this in, we can combine this with extensive reading because we can have many of these letters in the PERMA acronym as we do the reading. I was thinking about that when you were <laughs> describing it. Yeah, how, how can you bring them in? Well, one, one objection that comes up is well, what about sad stories? Isn't that, is that positive? So like, there's this one Singapore author, her name is Chen Christine Lim, and she used to write books for young children. And she wrote this book called Granny, in which there's a little girl and the grandmother, and at the end of the book, the grandmother dies. I said, isn't that, I said to her, wow, aren't you being cruel to the kids, making them cry about their poor grandmother dying? But she said, that's part of life. 
and kids understand that. And But in the book, there's also a lot of happy times that the girl has with her grandmother. So like Seligman says, positive psychology is not happyology. And so, yeah, we can experience joy, we can experience engagement, relationships, meaningfulness, achievement, even when it's a sad story. And now positive education is a, is a big thing. Seeing the glass as half full, looking for student strengths. Like the classic example is students write something, they hand it in, they get it back covered in red marks. So can't we make instead a comment, comment sandwich? Mm-hmm. We start off with something they did well, we have something they can improve in, improve on, and then we have something also that showed some strength. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. So, I mean, I still, I, I'm still guilty when I give feedback on my students' writing. There's a lot of negative, but I always tell, remind myself, be sure to go back and put in some positive. I was thinking you can use it for the micro and the, and the sorry, the, like the big, when you're planning a course, you plan the whole course and you keep this acronym in mind. And then while you're doing a very specific five minute long task, you can still use the same acronym. So you can look mm-hmm. at it from a, a micro or macro kind of yeah. view, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is building on success. And I think ER is very good for that because students can work at their own level. If your, if your language, second language is level is much higher than mine, you can read books that you can succeed at that are in your stretch zone, in your zone of proximal development. And I read easier books that are in my ZPD. I see, um, just looking at that article, there's those, uh, along with PERMA, I don't know if you want to go into this at all, um, like seven, seven concepts, maybe this is too similar, like connection with others, responsibility, gratitude, positivity, strengths, kindness, and meaning. Those are maybe like... Yeah, there's certainly a lot of overlap there. But let me just highlight one of them, and that's gratitude. There's... So what I try to do when I ask students to work together is I, at the end, I ask them to thank their partner, but I try to take it a step further where they have to give some kind of specific praise to their partner. So I talk about how to be a good group mate and I get their ideas about what to do to be a good group mate. And then students can praise each other for, for, or being a good group mate. So, and there's different activities that we can do to build students' sense of gratitude. So they can write about that. For example, when they're writing their own book, they can, they can write a book thank, to thank someone. So they can write, a, you know, like, uh, I remember... Mother's Day, when I was in elementary school, you had to make something for your mother to take home. Well, you can write a book for your mother to, to talk about all the, all the nice things that she has done for you. And nowadays, the, if you can't draw at all, no worries. You can just download the images and you can plunk them in your book and you can do the book online, and if your mother is on the other side of the world, no worries. You can send her the book. And, and you can share the book with your, with your groupmates. So you are providing your groupmates with extensive reading material. Mm-hmm. So not only can you share your thoughts on what you've read, and also on what 
are good things to read, but you can even create the materials that your roommates will read. Mm -hmm. Like one thing I used to do was everyone would, would write on one topic. Maybe they'd only write, you know, half a page or even less, a paragraph. And then we'd put it all together. And that's the class book that all the students contributed to. And that goes in the class library or yeah. however you store the reading materials. And I like that especially because it gives you such an immediate sense of an audience when, when you're writing, which is, I think, really important. Yeah, good point. So, I think that's great. That was our interview. Yeah, thank with, you, George. That was that was fantastic. That was that fantastic. Was, that was really I really good. enjoyed talking with him, and uh, I learned a lot about reading out loud to to students. I've I've only done that to such young students, so it's a challenge for me. I, I I'd like to try that with with some of my university students and see how it goes. <laughs> I really I really want to have the time to read that Trilly's book. Like what he called like the Bible, of, or maybe not the Bible, but like the big book on uh, reading out loud. Yeah. I think there's a world world out there you, you can discover. <laughs> yeah, and just like, I mean, I've been reading out loud to my daughter a lot. Yeah. And so I think that, I want to read it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's start a book club. Uh, yeah. And Looking ahead, what have we got to look ahead? Uh, we're going to interview a professor in New Zealand. Um and her name is Mitsue Tabata Samdom. She's Japanese and she's a teacher of Japanese. And uh, she's done a lot of uh, research and a lot of teaching on, well, extensive reading. Uh, in Japanese. In, in Japanese. That's some um, territory I think we wanted to cover. Yeah, um, absolutely. I have an interest in that. And we do. Yeah, we do <laughs> have an interest in that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so you uh, please send us your questions. Um, I know that many in our audience are uh, struggling students of Japanese like we are, and uh, that's that's the opportunity. Um, so yeah, you can send us or you can send us an email at uh, exrpodcast at gmail dot com, mm -hmm. and um, yeah. Or if you have any comments or questions, you can leave us a comment at erpodcast.wordpress.com. That's our that's our URL. Yeah, after 13 episodes, we managed to <laughs> memorize <got> it. <laughs> those two. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that interview. with, And I'm, I really want to learn about uh, doing extensive reading in, in Japanese. Yeah, and what's uh, available, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's what's coming. Uh, that second part of the interview with uh, uh, Dr. Jacobs and then uh, ER in Japanese. Great. Yeah. So I think that covers it for us today, doesn't it? Yeah, it's time to say happy, happy reading. reading. <laughs>